to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an audience questions episode. I went out on Facebook and Twitter and asked what people would like to see me take a crack at. And this is the result. questions. I'm just going to take this as a fairly informal episode. I'm going to try and get through as many as possible. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. So, first question. If you could revive one politician from the past, who would it be and why? John Stuart Mill. He's known more as a philosopher, but he did serve a term in Parliament, so I think that's enough to count him as a politician. Definitely would want John Stuart Mill back. A lot of my politics is sort of a reworking of that framework into today's world. It would be fascinating, if possible, to hear what he would have to say. And also, so many times, Mill says something that makes me just feel like he's a contemporary, and I really have to pinch myself to remind myself that he's not. When I did my interview with John Skorupski on John Stuart Mill, he had to bring me back a few times to remind me that Mill still is someone within the 1800s. And so many times I f- really have to remind myself of that because it's so easy to forget. I'll give you just one example. But this is a quote of Mill's that I've always liked. But what does it remind you of that's going on in the news today? So he says, quote, that very frequent infirmity of British minds, which takes preposterous pleasure in a bad idea, even when they are no longer really bad enough to carry it into practice. End quote. I mean, I won't say it, but what does that remind you of? Taking preposterous pleasure in a bad idea, but no longer being really bad enough to carry it into practice. I think that speaks very clearly to something, and there's so, so much of Mill which is like that. Next question, and this is a fairly practical one. How can I download podcasts without iTunes? Um, yeah, great question. Um, SoundCloud. I think my SoundCloud account is actually under Toby Buckle as opposed to the Political Philosophy Podcast, but SoundCloud is the player I use on the website. So if you just go to the website politicalphilosophypodcast.com and you go to any individual episode page, you should... Um, there should be a download button as well as a play button on the player. Um, that might be a bit different if you're on some sorts of phones, and then you can just go and view it in SoundCloud directly. Um, the other option is there's a number of podcast players that have a download option. So the one I use for most is uh, CastBox, and there's a download option, and we're on CastBox. Next question. Why is there no substantial discussion of elite or capital capture of democracy? Some thoughts of the applicability of randomization or sortation in democracy. Um, so I think I take the meaning of this. So in other words, even putting things to plebiscites, to big votes, there's a big risk in our democracy of the role of uh, money, the role of powerful people, the role of media unduly skewing an outcome 
against the public interest. Um, what about systems of governance whereby, say, a proposal that often gets floated is you have a citizen assembly where you randomly select a thousand people and they sort of serve as like a mini legislature to um, debate a particular law or proposal? Yeah, I like this a lot, actually. Um, I don't have any, like, systematic thoughts on it, but I think there's a lot to recommend it. So, yes, that does reduce a lot of the dangers of, um, as the questioner calls it, elite or capital capture of democracy. And I can think of a number of circumstances where this would have been a godsend. So, for instance, after the Brexit referendum... Um, you know, the government had sort of committed itself to Brexit of some form, but they didn't know what that form was. Um, and that's left Parliament trying to be this, like, soothsayer for the, the British will and what the British actually meant by that. So one solution would be to have a second referendum and try and narrow it down to a particular proposal. Um, another would be to do some sort of citizens' assembly to say, OK, we're doing Brexit, um, we're going to gather a thousand people for a year and see if they can get it down and some sort of consensus emerge because part of the fear of mass plebiscites um, is that people won't have the information to vote. But if they, if it was almost like a jury duty where you were sequestered for a certain amount of time, then presumably you would be able to gain that information and expertise over the course of your service. Now, that might still be less information and expertise than a truly qualified technocratic elite, but our elites at the moment aren't truly qualified and technocratic. So, you know, I don't know that this would be that much worse. And it has another feature to commend it, I think, which is um, what John Stuart Mill might call the educational function of democracy. If you listen to one of my um, early... Um, episodes with Zephyr Teacher, we talked about the value of things like um, jury duty, even though they're much maligned, precisely because they do bring individuals into contact with themselves as citizens. So, like, the same person can go from a very narrow, rational self-interest view of himself or herself in, say, a wage negotiation, but then the next day they get called up for jury duty, and what's in their rational self-interest doesn't factor in at all to their decision-making. They are wholly there to try and serve and to make the correct decision. Now, juries are biased and manipulatable in all sorts of ways, but then again, so are legislators. And I do think there is value in having institutions that create a sense of communal obligation and that create spaces where people are functioning outside of, you know, narrow economic self-interest. So if some sort of um, randomised citizen assemblies built into our democracies could further that, um, I, 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 like I say, I don't have a concrete proposal for how it would work, but I, yes, I think it's worth taking very seriously. And um, if there is someone who's thought this through in a much more concrete way, do let me know and we can have them on the podcast. But yeah, that's my answer to that. Um, similar to the first question, if you could meet any minor ancient Stoic philosopher, who would you meet and why? 
Okay, this is a very political philosophy podcast question. Um, I might be slightly misinterpreting minor ancient Stoic philosopher. I'm going to say Diogenes the Cynic, and my reasoning there is he just has um, an interaction with Alexander of Macedon, which you, you may well have heard, and it's just one of the more striking little nuggets of ancient history. So rather than retell it myself, I'm going to read you from Peter Green's Alexander of Macedon, which is absolutely one of my favourite biographies in the world. I reread it every two years. I've read it like ten times now. And this is just... So the reason I say Diogenes the Cynic is this is one of those moments in history I wish I could have witnessed. And I wonder if, like, the, the, the detail and the intimacy of the story that I'm about to read you is, um, is true, if it really happened. And if it did, you know, uh, what, what I, I would have loved to witness this, along with, like, the Gordian knot and stuff like that. Um... And who knows? Um, and I love Peter Green's biography because he weaves in just a number of symbolic and philosophical considerations into the text. So anyway, he's telling the story of the Congress at Corinth, where Alexander becomes the head of the League's forces, so he succeeds his father as the man who is going to be the commander-in-chief, I guess we would call it today, of the forces that are going to be invading the Persian Empire. So I'm taking it from Green here, quote, When the Congress was over, many statesmen and philosophers came to Alexander with their congratulations. We can imagine the scene all too clearly. But one famous character was conspicuous in his absence, Diogenes the Cynic. Peaked and curious, Alexander eventually went out to the suburb where Diogenes lived, in his large clay tub, and approached him personally. He found the philosopher sunning himself, naked except for a loincloth. Diogenes, his meditations disturbed by the noise and laughter of the numerous courtiers who had come flocking at the Captain General's heels, looked up at Alexander with a direct uncomfortable gaze, but said nothing. For once in his life, Alexander was somewhat embarrassed. He greeted Diogenes with elaborate formality and waited. Diogenes remained silent. At last, in desperation, Alexander asked if there was anything the philosopher wanted, anything that he, Alexander, could do for him. Yes, came the famous answer. Stand aside, you're keeping the sun off me. That was the end of the interview. As they trooped back into Corinth, Alexander's followers tried to turn the episode into a joke, jeered at Diogenes and belittled his pretensions. But the Captain General silenced them with one enigmatic remark. If I were not Alexander, he said, I would be Diogenes. This shows shrewd precipitance. Both men shared, and surely recognised in each other, the same quality of stubborn and alienated intransigence. But whereas Diogenes had withdrawn from the world, Alexander was bent on subjugating it. They represented the active and passive forms of an identical phenomenon. It is not surprising, then, in the circumstances, that their encounter should have been so abrasive. End quote.
So that story's always stuck with me, and I like it so much, and I love Green's telling of it, that I'm going to pick that as um, the one I would want to be there for. Next question. I've been wondering what a good answer is to this quandary on accepting morally dubious money. For instance, a petrochemical producer has sponsored Team Sky. For me, I can no longer support this team because of their anti-climate change lobbying, yet others will say I use plastics, so I'm hypocritical. Yeah, great question. And I think anyone who pretends they have a hard and fast answer to this is somewhat kidding themselves. I'll give you the way I think about this, um, but, you know, that's all I've got on this. And my philosophy here is let's not let the best be the enemy of the good. So it is going to be very difficult, probably impossible, to live in such a way as that we are not complicit in um, things that we find politically disagreeable and structures of oppression and so on and so forth. And I think there's a right-wing critique of the left as hypocritical, which is just silly, quite frankly. It goes something like this, oh, you claim to care about the environment and workers' rights, and yet I see you're, you know, drinking a Starbucks. I, I think this is silly. It's like saying, you know, your ability to critique the way societies work are constrained by living in a society. It's just silly, right? Like, we all have to participate in society, and doing so can be morally compromising. So for me, as a moral consequentialist, I kind of start at the top, and I say, what are the products or services that I'm consuming that... I can have the biggest difference on well-being and suffering by withdrawing my support from. So I think the most obvious one is factory farming. I'm not a pure vegetarian. Um, I will cheat occasionally, but more or less I try not to eat meat. Um, and I've been sticking with that for a little bit now. And... I think if everyone, even, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, but, you know, I can't give up my Sunday dinner or whatever. And that, you know, fine. Like, I think one big first step that I've been doing for a bit now is, like, just don't eat meat during the week. Um, and even that, if everybody did that, we'd be a long way to doing some real good in the world. And then you sort of go down the list. Um, diamonds, I won't go through the whole case. I think there's a big case to avoid spending money on diamond jewellery because um, there's a lot of economic and political problems with how that is sourced and there's a few others I can go over um, so for instance just you know one diamond's a waste of money but two um, when me and my wife got our wedding rings we specifically are like one thing which we didn't want diamonds on them and then you know I think doing a little bit like that, making a few ethical choices, um, I think generally oh, another big one would be where possible, take public transit, um, owning a car probably isn't great. Um, but that's how I think about it. I start with the really big ones where I can make the, the, the most difference. And then after doing that, if I still find myself participating and purchasing things from people who are doing things I disagree with, then I just sort of accept that as the cost of doing business, 
and existing within a society. An, an analogous argument would be um, giving money to charity, right? Now, there is an argument, as put forward by uh, Peter Singer or William McCaskill, who I had on the podcast a while back, that we should essentially be giving almost all of our incomes to charity. And there is a good ethical case for that. There is. Um, but as someone who, you know, works and has worked for some time now in charity fundraising, I always say to people, you know, actually, I'm not asking for anything. Like, I'm asking you for, for, for the money that you can spend and then just forget about. Like, I'm asking for a cut of your disposable income, not like your income income. And I think it would be better that a lot of people give at a modest level than everyone, than, you know, a, a tiny number of people give at this very extreme level, though I admire the people who can do that. So that's like, that's not a hard answer, but that's how I approach that. And then the final thing I'd add is sometimes we just have a non-rational aversion to something and think, you know, I just can't be part of that, even if it's not the biggest problem in the world, even if it's not, like, conforming to this utilitarian logic. I just, you know what, given that this sports team is now getting sponsored... I just, by this, you know, petrochemical firm, just something about that just repulses me. Then fine, follow that feeling. You know, like you're arguably doing good in the world by doing that. And the final point I'd add is if you do withdraw from purchasing a product because of an ethical concern, please do write the company and let them know. Because merely withdrawing is part of it, but that company needs to know that they're losing money by um, making those unethical decisions, and that should... So, for instance, I just wrote a handwritten letter to Walmart's CEO, um, letting them know I was concerned... I'll include a link to do this in the show notes, actually. It's a good little utilitarian action. Um, letting them know I was concerned about... Um, the welfare of animals used in their products. And they wrote me back a very nice letter. And, you know, I don't think that'll do any good by itself. But, you know, hopefully if more people do that, that will provide um, an incentive for that company to change their behaviour. So, anyway, that's how I think about some of those concerns. Uh, Favourite philosophical essay? Um, I'm going to recommend... I mean, there's so many... I'm going to recommend On the Negro Question by John Stuart Mill. Apologies for the um, words of the title um, being a little out of date now. Um, But this is a wonderful essay, and the reason I'm recommending it is I feel like it fully answers many of the sort of anti-social justice concerns that are being raised currently by, like, these intellectual dark web edgelords who, like, think... I mean, what did Sam Harris call his podcast um, arguing um, for genetic differences in intelligence between the races with Charles Murray? He called it forbidden knowledge, as if they're really pushing at the door of what's acceptable and raising edgy, difficult questions that have never been raised before. Now, I've already given... um, a big response in, you know, response to audience questions I got on this, on why I don't think 
the Charles Murray thesis that there's a genetic difference in intelligence between the races is credible. So that's on a previous Ask Me Anything. You can go back and check that out. But what's frankly kind of embarrassing here is how John Stuart Mill, over 150 years ago, this was written in 1850, <laughs> answers the same set of concerns infinitely more logically clearly exponentially more rhetorically powerful and much quicker he just does it in a much more efficient way than i did or that anyone i've seen today did so he's writing against an editorial from carlisle which um was horrified by the treatment of um ex-slave populations in the Caribbean. Not horrified that they were being treated badly, but horrified that they were being allowed political and economic independence and making the case for um, a reversion back to slavery and the necessity of white rule. And at the core of the argument was this idea that if you look at the observed differences, you can just tell that the black people are genetically, I mean, they wouldn't have had the word genetically, but genetically inferior if they say, look at the, the writing ability, look at the comprehension ability, look at just the general demeanour of the two different populations. Um, obviously, that is just science, right? So this is what I said when I talked about Charles Murray. I said, this idea that it's quote-unquote science... This is just something that keeps on getting thrown up every 10 years in a different form. And whenever it is, the people throwing it up just seem frustratingly unaware that this is a set of concerns that has been answered and been answered comprehensively. And it just seems like they're not aware of that. So I'm going to read you a little bit from Mill on the Negro question. And he says, okay, so let's say you do observe these differences between two different races. Does that, that doesn't prove anything about the innate capacities of the races. It proves something about the difference in how they've been treated, surely. And he uses this wonderful analogy of two trees. So quoting now, as might it well be said that two trees sprung from the same stock cannot be taller than one another, but from greater vigour in the original seedling, is nothing to be attributed to soil, nothing to climate, nothing to difference of exposure, has no storm swept over one and not the other, no lightning scathed it, no beast browsed on it, no insects preyed on it, no passing stranger stripped off its leaves or bark. If the trees grew near together, may not the one which, by whatever accident, grew up first, have retarded the other's development by putting it in its shade? Human beings are subject to an infinitely greater variety of accidents and external influences than trees and have infinitely more ability in impairing the growth of one another, since those who begin by being the strongest have almost always used their strength to keep others weak. What the original difference is amongst human beings, I know no more than your contributor, and no less. It is one of the questions not yet satisfactorily answered by the natural history of our species. End quote. So, isn't that fantastic? He's, he's essentially saying, well, look, if you've got two trees and they've grown differently, would you immediately say, oh, well, that's some difference in the seed, it's some difference in the genetic makeup of the trees? Or would you assume it's due to the amazingly complex effects of 
climate and environment, and in the way the trees interact with each other. He also goes on to point out that creating... So this is another little thing that the alt-right wants to bring up, is that they want to say, well, you can sort of just see the innate superiority of white people by the fact that we're the ones who invented civilization. Now, given that that's very, very, very historically dubious and many of the contributions to what we call civilization, maybe even most, come from non-white peoples, never mind that. Um, Mill, I'm just continuing on for the same quote, has something to say about that as well. It is well known that spontaneous improvement, beyond a very low grade of improvement by internal development, without aid from other individuals or peoples, is one of the rarest phenomenon in history. And whenever it is known to have occurred, was the result of an extraordinary combination of advantages, in addition, doubtless, to many accidents, of which all trace is now lost. No argument against the capacity of Negroes for improvement could be drawn from there not being one of those rare exceptions. It is curious, though, to note that the earliest known civilization we have, and the strongest reason to believe, was a Negro civilization. The original Egyptians are inferred, from evidence of their sculptures, to have been a Negro race. It was from Negroes, therefore, that the Greeks learnt their first lessons in civilization, and to the records and traditions of those Negroes did Greek philosophers begin and end their careers. End quote. So, again, just to summarize that, that isn't that the greatest, greatest answer to um, this idea that civilization has been a white thing? Well, one, it hasn't. As he points out, we have reason to believe that the first civilization was a black civilization. Again, apologies for um, using that variant of the N-word. It's just how the text is written. Um, but isn't that just the perfect answer? That when you do get genuine civilizational advance... It's a combination of a number of hugely complex forces that we don't understand. And to just go, oh, well, it's race, it's just dumb and silly. It's a childish form of analysis. And then he goes even further, and he says, um, let's just say it were true, it still wouldn't prove what you want it to prove. He says, I again renounce all advantage from facts. Were whites born ever so superior in intelligence to the blacks by competent of nature to instruct and advise them? It would not be the less monstrous to assert that therefore they either had to subdue them by force or circumvent them by superior skill, to throw upon them the toils and hardships of life, reserving for themselves under the misplaced name of work its agreeable excitements, end quote. So yeah, let's just say we can separate people out genetically by intelligence, be it racially or anything else. Would it then, in Mill's words, be the less monstrous to throw upon people who, through no fault of their own, have not um, been gifted with that genetic heritage, the toils and hardships of life? Is there any argument at all that the toils and hardships need to be reserved to the less intelligent, which is what seems to follow from the IDW edgelord concerns, right? If you don't see as many college professors or 
um, you know, doctors or surgeons or lawyers who are black, well, you know, maybe that's to do... Well, one, does it not occur to you that that has a huge amount to do with society and environment and the way blacks have been historically and still are today excluded from the educational and career trajectories that help them to access that? But two... Say we could make some division of society based on intelligence. Are we to condemn whole categories of mankind to just toil and drudgery, and the best that they can ever hope for in life is to stock shelves? I think that's a profoundly immoral vision of the world. So anyway, I do recommend you read the whole essay. I read a little bit from it, and what I want to give you a sense of is how just well, not just well, but how completely it answers the concerns that are being brought up to us as forbidden knowledge, that are being proffered to us as dangerous, edgy thinking, is actually not just old thinking. It's old thinking that has already been satisfactorily and completely rebutted. And that just goes for, you know, you can find in Mill the answers to most of the, I'm just asking questions, noise that the IDW bred. Okay, next question. What do I think about for the capacity of new genetic technologies, this follows on a little from the last one, to improve and um, help particular groups get ahead. So, for instance, um, if you can genetically edit the intelligence of your child, would this mean that rich families have yet another means of furthering and cementing their advantage? So, Yes, I mean, I generally try to stay clear of, like, science fiction speculation. I don't know what new technologies are coming down the line. But, yeah, it's not inconceivable that there's this, like, CRISPR technology that I've heard about, which, yeah, we can make genetic alterations to future generations. And, yes, under our current economic system, that would mean that the very rich would be able to have super-intelligent children and... You know, it would just further the inequality and the resentment that comes from that that's become a structural part of our society. That's certainly possible. I don't know if it's going to happen. But, yeah, it's easy to conceive of. I mean, I guess I'd just quickly make the point there that that mechanic is already in operation um, in our current world. And it seems really dystopian to imagine the scenario I've just outlined, but current things that have the same effect, albeit through much more mundane mechanisms, we see as normal and natural, and we don't we, we, we don't find them counterintuitive or weird at all. So it is already the case that the you know the comparatively affluent pour huge amounts of um time and money and resources in ensuring that their um, children get access to the best schools. And, you know, we've recently had this scandal um, with elite college admissions where apparently some wealthy parents were just straightforwardly paying for their children to get into these schools. But, you know, that's bad. Don't get me wrong. That's very bad. But, like, can we just stop and ask ourselves, does a system in which incredible amounts of societal energy and resources and social capital have to be poured into forcing teenagers whose brains haven't even developed properly yet to jump through a series of preposterous, arbitrary hoops, arguably at some detriment to their social and emotional growth, that... 
the children's ability to jump through those hoops is then determinant of their future economic success, their ability to climb the career ladder, the ability to have um, access to certain careers. All of that is being determined by their ability to jump through these preposterous hoops at a young age. When, when was that ever an especially moral way of structuring who gets advantaged in society? I, I don't get that. And then add to that, imagine a dystopian world where not only could rich parents edit their children so as they succeeded more in life, um, but they could actually, against the will of poor parents, edit poorer children so as to damage them and make them less competition. Well, again, that's exactly what we're doing. When you consider... I'll just give one example. The effects of the criminal justice system on young people, particularly young poor black men and some black women, as as well as, yes, some poor white people. Um, But interacting with the criminal justice system at a young age, again, before your brain has fully developed, essentially destroys the rest of your life. For no intelligible reason. It it doesn't make people less likely to commit crime. It makes people more likely to commit crime. Consider the effects of poverty, ill health, access to good schools. We almost intentionally, it seems to me, sabotage the ability of young people to grow up successfully. You know, and I think there's a background assumption to all of this. Um, The sort of IDW edgelord's concerns about what if black people are genetically less intelligent. These sorts of concerns about future technology, which, which it just takes as granted the fundamental moral logic of meritocracy, i.e., as Mill says, the um, most interesting, you know, the most agreeable excitements of life should go to the more intelligent, and the toils and hardships of life should go to the less intelligent. I just don't buy that moral logic. Intelligence is not chosen, even if you won't go with me all the way to my free will scepticism. You did not build your brain. You've got no right to that. Now, it is, of course, the case that there'll probably have to be some segmentation in terms of intelligence, like probably... You know, if someone's going to be a surgeon, we want them to have a certain set of capacities. Certainly people who do theoretical physics will probably, you know, be drawing more from certain types of people. But by and large, this idea that one drudgery has to be done and can never be rendered obsolete, I just don't, I don't buy this moral logic. I think we need to think much more and much more rigorously about how, as Mill says, the agreeable excitements of life can be much more fairly distributed. I think if we got rid of successfully all of the, um, you know, pay-for-access scandals and um, all these fears of genetics or whatever, we'd still be left with a fundamentally unjust social structure and we'd still be left with a social structure that people, call it populists or whatever, rightfully felt resentful of. Okay, I'm running over on time. I'll take one final question just because I wanted to get to this. Is fascism a right-wing or left-wing phenomenon? I, I like this question a lot, and I could probably do a whole episode on this. I'll just sketch what I think an answer to this would look like. 
First of all, left-wing and right-wing are umbrella terms. They do not mean one thing, and they mean quite different things to different people. And I don't think they can be adequately defined by just you know, collapsing views together, I tend to think about ideologies as um, recurring themes, recurring patterns of ideas. So with that said, does that mean we have to be fundamentally agnostic when we classify fascism? Um, No, I think broadly we can say that it's right wing and I'll give my reasoning. But just first, I do want to note a background condition to this, in that there has been a lot of talk from online conservatives um, really making a strong argument that um, fascism, particularly Nazism, is um, a left-wing phenomena, and essentially that what the new Social Democrats are proposing on the left is a sort of, like, soft fascism. And the argument goes something like this. Um, Fascism is about, like, extended government control, control over the economy, um, just like the Social Democrats want, and it also invinces control over individuals in forms of, like, gun control and so on, like like this right-wing meme that the Holocaust wouldn't have happened if the Jews had guns, right? And so because of those things, um, it should be considered left-wing in contrast to right-wing, which is about free markets and individuals and so on. Um, This is wrong, I think, both historically and um, in terms of, like, thinking about a mature typology of ideologies. So just on the two data points mentioned, um, I don't think it's actually historically the case that, um, just take the case of the Nazis, um, were strong economic interventionists. There's some areas, like the Autobahn building program, but that was fairly limited. And I actually did a bit during my MA on, like, the economic policies of the Nazis, and my overall takeaway was it's just kind of a muddle. Um, Yes, the word socialist is in their name, but that's reflecting an earlier period of the party, and the main people who were the leaders of that wing of the party were killed in Kristallnacht, or the Night of the Long Knives, sorry, I forget which one. Um, And that was mostly gone by the time the party actually came to power. And once it did, it was, as with so many things in Nazi ideology, it was kind of a confused and shifting muddle that sometimes said very pro-capitalist things and sometimes not. It wasn't really at the heart of what they were trying to achieve. The next part is gun control, and this is actually just false. Um, The Nazis were actually generally quite liberalising in terms of their attitude to gun ownership. So they came to power in a context in which gun ownership was highly regulated. Um, Part of that was the um, settlement of the Treaty of Versailles, limited gun ownership, and then also um, political unrest, political violence, uh, following immediately the First World War, the very real possibility of a German revolution meant that um, guns had become quite heavily curtailed by the time the Nazis came to power, and they actually liberalised the laws a lot and encouraged um, private citizens to own guns. Um, Now, it should be noted that that encouragement um, obviously didn't apply to groups like Jews or Roma or political dissidents. So there's maybe like some local instances where the Nazis practiced gun control, but actually um, in line with sort of authoritarian... um, nationalistic, expansionist ideology everywhere, they 
tended to be in favour of the citizen class, or at least the citizen class that was of the right race, owning guns. Um, And that actually tends to be quite a common feature. So contra the political right that assumes political authoritarianism um, is, you know, prefaced by the taking of guns. It's actually a fairly common theme that right-wing authoritarians tend to liberalise gun ownership. So that's a bit of a point, a, a side tangent. But as Mill says in The Negro Question, um, I have so big an objection to his values that I have little time left for his facts. Um, so the facts of that argument are wrong. But then let's look generally about what are the recurring themes in left-wing ideologies. And I say ideologies, I corrected myself at the end, because there's more than one left-wing ideology. There's different families of liberalism, there's different families of socialism, and then um, there's sort of other thin ideologies like feminism or environmentalism or green ideology. There's sort of non-liberal left ideologies like communism. But if we were to pick out some themes that are common across maybe not all of them, but tend to be present? What are the family resemblances of the left wing? First of all, I think the thing that jumps out is equality. Now, that's processed in very different ways, from a sort of more equal opportunities equality to a more sort of of fundamental socialist equality. Um, But throughout all of it, the idea of sort of the brotherhood of man and a fundamental moral equality among human beings, that does tend to be the case. Now, fascism is explicitly an anti-equality ideology. At its heart is this idea that different groups of people are not equal, and it only preaches equality in the very broadest sense, in that sometimes it'll say something like, just like other people are allowed to have an ethnostate, white people should be allowed to have an ethnostate. But I don't think that comes from a fundamental belief in the equality of persons. I think it comes from a desire to have a white ethnostate. So in that sense, at its heart, fascism has something that is inimical to what is at the heart of many left-wing ideologies. Um... Also, when you think about um, the conception of change, I've argued that you can sort of, um, one way you can create a typology of ideologies at the conceptual level is how they, they process positive future social change. So, like, radical socialists will interpret it as, like, this revolutionary moment starting a clean slate. Um, liberals will think about it as charting new ground. Conservatives tend to think about it as a reversion. And so where does uh, fascism fall under that? For the most part, as a reversion. Getting back to, again, think about it, we're returning to the old purity of the Aryan race. Now, the fact that conservatives think about change as a reversion doesn't mean that they can't be very radical and very uh, aggressive in pursuit of that change. So that's another element in which um, I, I would argue fascism is recognisably right-wing in that, in terms of its um, conceptualization of the process of social change. And then as a final point, it's not there through all of the left, and it depends which period of history that you're looking at, but it does seem to be a common theme that there's something internationalist about the left. 
you know, workers of the world unite. And liberalism, too, has always had its sympathy for global institutions like the, you know, European Union or um, the United Nations or stuff like that, which is obviously very counter to um, fascism as an overtly nationalist ideology. Now, that's not to say that there aren't left-wing nationalisms, there absolutely are, but the the nationalism in in, um, left-wing ideologies does tend to be, again, not always, but does tend to be uh, balanced out by different competing concerns. And you can sort of go down the list, I've given you three, but you can look at what are the central um, values that left-wing ideologies tend to appeal to, and for the most part... um, the other, another one would be individualism, right? Um, for the most part, the, fascism doesn't map neatly onto that. It doesn't map that neatly onto most forms of mainstream conservatism, to be fair. Um, but I'd argue it's it's closer to that. Um, if you're going to have to put it under one of these umbrella terms, left-wing or right-wing, I'd put it under right-wing. So that's like... You know, that could be a full episode by itself, going through that and providing historical texts to evidence those claims. But that would be my 101 answer. Um, And the final point there is I think this sort of question gets brought up because it's like... um, It gets thrown around back and forth to be like, there's nothing at all fascistic about what conservatives say. But the truth is that there kind of is... A little bit that's fascistic about the modern American right. Now, there's a lot of stops on the train that leads to Nazi Germany, and you know we're nowhere near yet. And people who say that we are are being hyperbolic. But to point out that some of the stuff I've been talking about about what's getting said about race by these online provocateurs, um, a lot of the sort of subtle and not-so-subtle authoritarianism of the Trump era, the re-embrace of nationalism, the the sort of disdain for these internationalist institutions. There's, there's echoes of it, right? And it's not illegitimate to point that out. And there's this thing on the right where they just say, oh, well, every time you disagree with us, you call us Hitler. And it's become such a meme that we can't point out these sorts of... Um, latently fascistic themes that creep into right-wing discourse. And I think we just need to be unapologetic and say there are parts of this that are fascistic, and here's my historical evidence for that claim, here's how I'm locating fascism within a typology of ideologies, here's why I think that. I'm not just name-calling, I'm making a historically informed argument. Now, they'll also say at this point, well, what about communism? Um, Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm willing to bite the bullet on that one. Um, I won't go through the full evidencing of this, but I will say in terms of the ideology used to justify, say, the creation of the Soviet Union or other states around the world that have become politically authoritarian, they often have appealed to left-wing ideas. And, yeah, we should own that on the left. And I, you know, amongst hard lefties, the original divide is between those who have a sneaking sympathy for the Soviet Union and those who just firmly reject it. And I'm definitely in the latter camp. I think there's nothing to be said for those systems. We can't chain ourselves to those historical corpses. And going forward into today's world, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. So the fact that... um, 
you know, there's authoritarian socialist governments in Cuba or Venezuela that correctly call out the US for its hypocrisy and war crimes. They're correct in that, but they're not correct in anything else, and we shouldn't be in the business of defending them. The fact that there's radical Islamist terrorists who correctly point out the war crimes that the US has perpetrated doesn't mean they're correct about anything else. Like, we need to have room in our heart to hate both sides of that. So I'm, I'm always of that latter camp on the left. And I just think it's silly. And the final thing I think is silly is when people get into arguments about what was worse, communism or fascism, they were both really bad guys. No beauty, truth or wisdom is coming from having that dispute. So that's my thoughts on is fascism conservative and its ro- and the role of those things in contemporary debate. I think I've run over time a little, so I'll pause there. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoy the show you just listened to, there's a few different ways you can follow us. You can subscribe on iTunes, you can follow us, as I mentioned, on any of the podcast players, and we have a social media presence. I've been up on Twitter a bit recently, and we also have a Facebook page. Links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. If you want to support the show, you know, this is a passion project that has no sponsors, we do no advertisement, all of our audience and all of our monetary support come from our listeners, so to help us grow our audience, please do share episodes, comment, leave reviews, that's always really helpful, and if you're able to support in a more monetary way, we have a Patreon page, so it's patreon.com, stroke political philosophy podcast, and whatever seems right to you. I've been suggesting that people sponsor the show at two dollars an episode so if the episode you just heard was as enjoyable and invigorating or as bitter and unpalatable as a cup of coffee consider sponsoring it on that basis as always big 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 thank you to everyone who does sponsor the show you're making it possible for this to go out to thousands of people for free and ad free so i'm genuinely grateful to all of you thank you so much Apart from that, that's this week's episode, and I hope you'll return next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 